0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Page 858. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its state, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house in the same way that your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven this is the word of the lord thanks, be to God. thanks tan take a seat everybody I feel like we need to talk about something this morning. I feel like we need to uh, talk about why Christianity is so boring. Why is Christianity so boring? So irrelevant, so inconsequential? How did we get here? Do you ever feel like that, by the way? I wonder if anyone will raise their hand. This is not a trap. (laughs) Do you ever feel like that? Maybe it's just me. I feel like that. If you ask around, by the way, um, the people who are at the shops right now are not here. That's how they feel about Christianity. It's just boring. Uh, or it's not even boring. For something to be boring, I have to pay enough attention to it for it to bore me. It's just irrelevant. It's inconsequential. I'm indifferent to it. If you look at kind of the major views of uh, god of religion of faith in the world around us um, this would be the major view of of australian people this would be the major religious attitude for people in australia you've got uh, people who are theists. I guess this is the three major camps. You've got people who are theists. These people believe that there is a God or gods, right? We fit into the broad character category of theism. There is a God. Uh, maybe I know him. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's not him, but her. Maybe it's, maybe it's they, right? Who, who knows? Like there is a God out there. Theism. Then there's atheism, which is my strongly held belief that there is no god Uh, this idea that has been held by humans for all of human history is wrong there is there's nothing there there's nothing beyond what i can see and taste and touch and hear there is no god This group of people is far, far, far smaller than the volume of their speech. Um, They got really popular about 10 years ago and everyone thought the world has been taken over by atheists. They represent the smallest minority of people on the face of the earth and a shrinking minority. Most of the people who have ever lived and most of the people born from day to day are born into religious uh, worldviews. There is some kind of God or gods out there. So theism, atheism, the biggest religious belief in Australia though is the belief of apathyism, which is which is clever, right? It's a it's a it's what's called kids. It's called a portmanteau, and it's uh, it's apathy and theism. And this is this is someone came up with this about twenty years ago, and uh, this is the major belief of Australians today. Apathyism. I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe there isn't a God. I'm not even agnostic about it, I just don't care. It has no bearing on my life at all. I don't wonder about whether there's purple ladybugs. It's irrelevant. It doesn't have any effect on me as a person, and so therefore, why would I give any of my attention to it? And in a world where uh, attention spans are shrinking and the available amount of time I have to give to anything is shrinking, I'm not gonna waste my time with anything inconsequential apatheism the average person you walk by today is an apatheist now that's fine uh you better make peace with that if you haven't already because it is the air that we breathe what i can't get over and what i can't deal with and what i can't ignore is christian apatheism that's what gets me christian apatheism it should strike you as an oxymoron because it is but this is nominal christianity this is not 20 years old this is hundreds and hundreds of years old and it has over time formed unfortunately, the foundation of some of our experiences of Christianity in the Western world um, and certainly in Australia. We are primed for this because we're kind of apathetic as a culture. There is no one more laid back than an Aussie. And so this feels kind of comfy for us. If I can have a lax, laxadaisical kind of attitude towards God, that suits me well. If i can call it christianity all the better it gives me a framework for life and connects me with some of my heritage as a member of the western civilization this fits me nicely christian apatheism how did we get here how 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 on earth Did people who claim the name of Jesus claim to be followers of the most cataclysmic individual who has ever lived in the history of the world? How did we become so meh? This, by the way, is the reason why everyone out there is meh when it comes to faith. They see the representatives of faith as meh, and so they say, well, obviously there isn't much to be found there. There's not much of consequence. How do we get here? In the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the the Matthew 5 to 7, the chunk of Matthew's gospel that we're looking at over 20 weeks as a church, um, Jesus takes Christian apatheism, he, he climbs a mountain, sits down, and then smashes it in the face. Smashes it to pieces. This manifesto of the kingdom of God is the antidote apatheism it's the salt on the leech of Christian nominalism so I'll just give you because I'll give you a heads up because this is what Jesus did Luke 14 he gave he could tell people count the cost here's the cost of sitting through the next 20 weeks at this church the cost will be maybe having to listen to a boring sermon but a far greater cost will be having sacred Christian nominalism smashed to pieces so don't come. There are, I tell you what, there are, there are plenty of churches where that is the creed. That is the core belief of the church. Apatheism is the foundation on what, which we're built. Christianity as an addendum to all the things that are actually important to me, that is what we're all about. So those churches are available. But God help us if ever we become one of them. I hate Christian apathyism. I think God hates it. Got a little bit heavy. Here's something. Here's something a little bit lighter. Okay, this is. I love this quote. This is. Um, all right. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Here's the image that came to mind when I was thinking about this. It's like the nominal Christianity thing is like the way that you view, and just check yourself, this might be it for you, and today's the time to repent. Your life as a pie chart with slices for everything that's important to you, and one of those is Jesus, or maybe it's church or whatever, faith, being a good person or whatever, that slice And we can easily justify that to ourselves because everything else has a slice. And so this is how we divide up our priorities in in life. And this is what I give my energy to. And, And maybe those slices shift and change before I'm a parent. I don't have any slice for kids. And afterwards, that becomes like half of my pie. That's the way that we think about life. That's our sort of economic basis for living. But if that's the way you view Jesus, then you haven't got it yet. Jesus is the pie. It's not that I don't have other interests. I do have a great deal of interest in wife and kids and steak. I don't know, whatever it is. But Jesus is over all of those things and in all of those things and forms the substance of those things. If we we just want him to have a slice, then... um it turns out we never had him at all. He says something to that effect at the end of this sermon, and it's chilling. I never knew you. There's this quote by Wilbur Rees, and I just think it's so good. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. That's the Christian nominalist, the Christian apatheist. That's the hymn. Jesus won't let us do that. Not if we're really going to be a disciple of his. He's just not, like, he's just not going to allow it. He's the boss. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. He's the saviour. He chooses what Christianity is he chooses what following him means and he's not going to let that one slide if you're here this morning and that's your been your view that's been your practice then he says come he says come you're welcome you're invited you're included But he says, unless you take up your cross daily, you cannot be my disciple. Taking up your cross daily is kind of involving, it turns out. It's kind of hard. requires investment, commitment. It cannot be an appendix. Jesus says in verse 13 to 15, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lamp stand and it gives light for all those who are in the house. Salt, light. Both good things. Things of value, things of consequence, unless they're not, in which case they're useless things. Salt that's not salty. Light that's hidden. Both good things that have become useless, pointless, nominal. It strikes me, you know, it really for the first time as I was looking at this, it strikes me that he says, "You are." He looks at his disciples right on this mountain. He looks at them and says, "You are," not like you could be. Just follow these twelve steps. Or one day you might be, if you turn up to church every week and join a small group, he's like, no, you are. You're, if you're a disciple, this is what you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, a lot of people have done what we often do with Jesus, particularly with his parables, but we do it with his metaphors as well. We spend all of our time trying to figure out, now, salt, light, what do these things mean? What do they mean? What are going to be saying? What, what's the picture? And then we spend all of our time trying to figure it out and never actually being it. So here's, I'm not going to go into it. There's all kinds of theories about why he chooses salt. Is it a preservative? Does it make things taste better? Is it something to do with influence? Is, you know, what about the light? We can look at a little bit of this, but here's the point these things are good they're good they do good they are good they have a positive influence and he says of the earth of the world so something good with positive influence on the earth in the world some people say that Christians are so um, what's the old saying we're so we're so obsessed with heaven that we're of no earthly use That's not what Jesus says. He's like, no, no, you're not the salt of the heaven. You are to have a positive, consequential influence on the world. Both of these things are good unless they're not, unless they're useless. Salt is good, so some, um, elsewhere Jesus will say just to that effect, salt, it's good. This is obvious to the people he's speaking to, you kind of have to do the translation, cultural translation to first century salt is not something that's on every table, something your kids pour out when you're at the cafe, it's not, it's not like that, it is valuable, it's worth its weight in gold. There's books that have been written, whole books, on the influence of salt on the world as like a civilization maker or breaker. Soldiers used to be paid in salt. Roman soldiers would get paid in salt. It was called a salarium. That's why we talk about getting a salary. It's a salt-based metaphor. You could buy and trade in salt. You could buy a slave with salt. That's where we get the saying, he's not worth his salt. Salt is valuable. It's also useful. Preservative, antiseptic, but also it just makes things taste better. Ask my son. My son insists on having egg white without the best part of it. I just want the white part but try and give him that egg white without salt, and he is not having it. Because egg white is boring. Irrelevant, inconsequential. It's like nominal Christianity. <laughs> nominal Christianity is the egg white of the world. It's, it's meh. But with salt, hey, you got something to work with. It's tasty. It's good. Salt is good unless it's not unless it's not salty. You've got to remember as well that Jesus is talking to Jews and Matthew is writing for Jews, and so they're getting all of these metaphors and pictures that we're probably missing because we haven't read the Old Testament for 12 years. But they're hearing all kinds of stuff in his, in his metaphor of the salt. They're hearing all kinds of stuff about covenant a practice in the ancient world in general and in Judaism in particular that salt was representative of covenant because salt lasts forever this is the point of what Jesus says he's kind of being ironic ironical salt doesn't lose its taste its saltiness it has it forever it preserves things it's it's um it's uh it perseveres and that's why salt was used in um covenant renewal ceremonies because it was it made people think this is like what god's covenant is like it's not here today and gone tomorrow it lasts just like salt so in leviticus chapter 2 this is one example of many he, he god says to his people you ought to season each of your grain offerings with salt really that stuff is worth its weight in gold doesn't matter this is important you must not omit it from your grain offerings, the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. This is important. It's symbolic. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. This is not uh, good old Aussie battlers like my—you know the neighbours that I tell you about sometimes. Ah, salt of the earth type people. Maybe they are. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about good old boys. He's talking about... People in the world that have a profound effect on the world they make things taste better they make all things better they may they may have an antiseptic effect on the world they may kill diseases social ills but ultimately and most powerfully they are to represent and be um, uh, uh, there to be um, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Ambassadors, right? That's Paul's language for this. Ambassadors for Christ, right? They are people who bring salt. They are people who bring covenant. They are people who 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 sign new covenants between people and God. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. It's to be part of God's mission on the earth. Remember, all through this sermon, Jesus is going to talk about the fact that He, the kingdom of God is with us because he's with us. He's begun a new thing. This new kingdom is now evident in our midst, and part of being the salt of the earth is pushing out that kingdom, spreading it, inaugurating it, inviting people into it, being the salt of the covenant for people. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Unless you're not, unless you're hidden, unless you have so piled up life's accoutrements that the light now is smothered. All of these sayings of Jesus are so profound. They're so amazing that they've made their way into our kind of cultural nomenclature. So we say the salt of the earth is the good old boy. And we say, don't hide your light under a bushel. Like, you know, use your gifts. These things are just, just shadowy mimics of what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the fact that you are good at dancing but you're too shy to dance. It's not, this is not a, a Disney tale. This is you are the light of the world. You, you have a purpose to shed light in dark places unless you have so piled up all of the other stuff in life that you're now hidden. Then you're useless with respect. Light reveals things. Light exposes things. Light chases away darkness. Light brings revelation. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So for us to be the light of the world means that we bring light like Jesus does. Everywhere he went. There was never a point in his life where the, the, the shade was over the lamp. Light reveals it rescues people who are lost, stumbling around in dark the darkness of apathyism, stumbling through life, meaningless life. Light rescues lost people. For that light to be shed, for it to have any use for the world, it must shine. I've, I want to share a, a quote with you about this, this the, the, um, the fact that light as a metaphor really joins up this great thread that runs through all of the Bible, particularly through the book of Isaiah. So you need to know when you read Matthew, Matthew's just got Isaiah on the brain. He's constantly feeding off Isaiah and he's interpreting Jesus' actions and words through the book of Isaiah. And so um, he, when he hears Jesus say, "You're the light of the world," he just clicks. Oh, this is about the, the 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 coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah, and and if we're the light of the world and He's the light of the world, then this is about us being part of His renewal mission across the face of the earth. All of this is pinging for him, and I didn't know very much about it until I read one interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount this past week, and praise the Lord because for, for small mercies, because I need this from time to time. I had a little bit of a dark week, and, I, and, and it just lifted me um, when I read this from a guy named Charles Qualls. And that is his real name. His real name is Charles Qualls. And I just had to pause and thank God for this man, not just for his scholarship, but for his name charles quiles i just stopped i had sent a message to renee and said i just think you need to know that i just read an interpretation of the sermon on the mount by a game named a guy named charles quiles here's what he said throughout the prophecies of isaiah the shining light is a metaphor of the messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of god among the nations Jesus looks at you. He sees salt. He sees light. He sees you as an agent of reconciliation. He sees you as an ambassador for his kingdom. He sees you as participating in the missionary purpose, which is manifesting the glory of God among the nations. The earth, the world. So, here, like, this is the challenge, right? If the predominant religion of our time and our culture is apatheism and we are called to be the salt and the light that dissolves apatheism, then the question is like, how do? What do we? How do we do this? Because that's something you know, like that's a pretty lofty thing to be a part of. If you're here this morning and you're like just about everyone and you're feeling a kind of lack of purpose in the world, an apathy, if you will, then this is something you can get your teeth into, to be part of the mission of King Jesus in establishing his kingdom on the earth, the manifestation of the glory of God. So Isaiah says, by way of prophecy, God speaking of his people, us, his people, I will make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth, to be my salvation. Whoa. Oh. you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then he gives us this this, uh, one verse, which is a summary verse for everything we've looked at so far. Is this the fourth week we've done this in the Sermon on the Mount? I think so. This is the summary verse over all of those Beatitudes over everything he said about suffering persecution, over what he said about being salt and light, he says in verse 16 of chapter 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, purpose clause, consequence, consequence, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's what it's all about. The question remains, how do we do this? Okay, you've said I'm salt. You've said I'm light. And now you've given me this commissioning. You've given me this purpose. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. What are the good works? Read through all the Beatitudes. Read through his his call to us. First of all, to his first disciples in chapter 4, to fishes of men. Then through the last few verses about persevering through persecution. All of these things are ways of letting our light shine. So that, purpose clause, consequence opposite of apathy, opposite of inconsequential, opposite of irrelevance, so that they, all the other people, everyone across the face of the earth, the nations, may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. How do we do this? I had this on my mind this last week, right? Actually, it was two weeks ago. I was on my day off Friday driving along Westwood Drive and I saw these um, two very, very young. Like, obviously cannot be 18, but must have been 18 because they were driving a car. These 18-year-old girls, just, uh, they're, they're too young, And they were um, stranded on the side of the road, one tire completely blown out and shredded to pieces with big piles of rubber down the road, obviously driving on it for some time before coming to a hopeless stop. And so I don't know how to change a tire, pulled over, and uh, they were like, we have no idea what to do. And one of them was on the phone to her dad saying, why can't you just come down here? Mm. So I was like, I'll change the tyre, no problem. So we were changing the tyre and it was on a, the major road, right? And I'm on the very edge of the road, like feeling a little bit too close to the edge of the road. There's nothing we can do about it. And then I, th- I had this verse in my mind because I'm teaching on this and so this is all I ever think about while I'm teaching on it. And it struck me. Is this one of those? And it's hard, right? Because you've got to deal with what else, like the other stuff Jesus says in this sermon that punches us in the face. Like when you get to chapter 6, it's just one chapter later. In verse 1 to 2, he says, be careful. He knows us so well, you know. It's like he created us or something. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. It's just another translation of the good works thing. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the board, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people till I tell you that's their reward. So, I don't know. It seemed to be maybe a little bit what he's talking about in terms of like, people giving glory to God for good works because they were like, what, why are you doing this? I, f- I feel sad that this is so weird um, that they were like, oh, this is crazy. But, and she was like, I don't have anything to pay you. I was like, oh, that's Okay. <laughs> So my response was, because this is good, this is good, this is the one Peter thing, right, giving a reason for the hope that you have, it's part of that. I I was like, well, I I follow Jesus and I feel like this is something he would do. So maybe there's something there. But I don't know, how much of it was me kind of warning people, like I was hoping some of you guys would be driving past. I think the question is, and this gets back to the the heart of the issue, and I'm sorry, I'll I'll finish up here, but here's here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus' teaching in general, his whole view of discipleship, and this sermon in particular, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, right? And we've talked about the heart a lot, and so is he. He's going to throughout this. So the question is, in that action, am I doing something that is consistent with the heartbeat of my life. Is that thing just a consequence of the heartbeat of my life, the pie chart, Jesus colouring, everything kind of worldview that I have in mind and and heart and hands? Or is it a photo op? Do you go to my Instagram, which doesn't exist, and it's just me with a selfie with two girls in tears and me... Is it that... Is it the politician taking advantage of an opportunity to swing a hammer, which he's never done in his life, but he's got a hard hat on now and the Herald Sun is taking photos? Is it that? Or maybe he does swing a hammer. Maybe he does volunteer. With, for That's the question. Is it consistent with my heartbeat or is this an opportunity for self-aggrandizement? Is my approach to this that people might see my good works and glorify me instead of my Father in heaven? That's what Jesus is talking about in the Matthew 6 passage. These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. And the only answer is to so organise our lives so that they are in step with the life and teaching and actions and, and kingdom manifesto of Jesus that these things just run, run from our heart. It's just the overflow of what we're already on about. Then we can be assured that those good works, those acts of righteousness will have their true eternally purposeful climax in the worship of our father in heaven i told you i'd stop so here's let me just give you a little insight next week we're going to get to jesus teaching on how he fulfills the law this is really important because then we're going to break for easter probably four services i think and when we come back he's going to say all kinds of things about like you heard it was said eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth you heard it was said don't commit adultery You heard it was said, you heard it was said in the Old Covenant, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you. And so it's really important that first we establish Jesus' role in fulfilling, not replacing, uh, not casting aside, but fulfilling the Old Covenant law. That's what we're looking at next week. Then we'll get to Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and we'll do that and come back to the rest of this sermon on the mount that's all i got we're going to pray together and uh since i've taken up too much of our time uh rather than me praying for you i'm just going to invite doug why don't you come up here and uh and intercede for us for the church for the world and then we'll close our time together please join me